It's smooth like butter. It's Kmart. It's Kmart on a Saturday afternoon when you drifted in after the arcade and you're looking through the tapes and you're like, hmm, maybe I'll have A&W on the way home. And it's a nice smooth Saturday afternoon. It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt. D and Keith, brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith, D, and Matt. Episode 9 of NBC Saturday Night, starring Elliot Gould, originally aired on January 10th, 1976. Episode 9 of S and Hell. Welcome back, Matt. Welcome back, D. Hello. Oh, it's great to be back. Is this our first episode of 1976? I was just going to welcome you guys to 1976. Woo! It's great to be in 1976. It is. It is. I didn't uh, I want to stylistically move away from the mid-70s. <laughs> yeah, we are in 1976. It is a big year in the states. It was the bicentennial, which I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about as we go through the year. This episode is hosted by Elliot Gould. His musical guest is Anne Murray. And Matt, I know you've been waiting for that uh, edgy music to come, so I'm glad. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to that. Let me ask you a question, uh, Absolutely. if I may. Yes. Tell me about Elliot Gould's uh, star at this time. I'm not super familiar with Elliot Gould at this point in his career. I don't Absolutely. know him at all, so yeah, I'm dying to know. Um, at this point in time, he's on the crest of superstardom. His, his big three hits... In the years leading up to this were uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, for which he got an Oscar nomination, The Long Goodbye, and MASH. And Matt and I, we recently spoke about MASH over on our other podcast, Your Favorite Canadian Actor. His most recent release at this point was Robert Altman's Nashville. Most modern fans would know Elliot Gould for his role as Mr. Geller, uh, what is it, Ross and Monica's dad on Friends. Oh! And he, yeah, yeah, and he was in oh. Ocean's... You got him now? now? Oh my god. Yeah, and he was in Oceans 11, 12, and I think 13. No wonder uh, he brought me comfort. He was a familiar face. What a cool, goofy guy. I wish I could remember what it was. Elliot Gould, I remember reading something that Elliot Gould said and hating it. And like, <laughs> oh, that almost makes me really not like Elliot Gould. But you know what's so stupid? I can't remember what I read. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just remember reading something Elliot Gould said and thinking to myself, Oh, I don't like Elliot Gould after reading that a little bit. Uh, so God knows what that was. I'll touch on Anne Murray as well at this point. Anne Murray, um, Nova Scotian, like us. For me, it, it's so hard to talk about Anne Murray in the abstract as we do with so many other people because as a Nova Scotian, I grew up certainly hearing Anne Murray constantly. Radio, television, gift shops, everywhere. Uh, she was a phys ed teacher who became a uh, singer. Who, well, singer became a phys ed teacher, became a singer, and went on to be probably the most famous Nova Scotian until uh, Elliot Page. Sort of encapsulating Anne Murray is, is difficult, but she was sort of in the country, easy listening genres. You must have both heard enough Anne Murray over the years. Oh, yeah. yeah. We start the show with Don Pardo announcing the Dead String Quartet, featuring Dan Aykroyd, Lorraine Newman, Garrett Morris, and Chevy Chase, who sit dead until Aykroyd's corpse sort of tips over, bumps into Newman, Newman dominoes into Morris, Morris dominoes into Chase. A woman in the audience looks absolutely terrified as he's toppling towards her. 
But when he lands on the concrete floor and breaks the cello, he gives live from New York at Saturday night. Clever, funny, fast, didn't overstay its welcome. Great fall from Chevy. The re reactions of the audience members were pretty gold, too. This was my favorite opening so far. Mm -hmm. There was an audience member on the left that you can see. I think they're the only one in the shot. They look so confused. They have no idea what's going on. This was the best fall yet for me, just because it kind of involved the audience. Every time he looks into the camera, I'm like, that man is so cute. He needs to stop making eye contact with the camera. Star power. <laughs> so we go now to uh, Don Pardo announces the cast for the night, and one a small addition is special guests Franken and Davis, who are the comedy writing team of Al Franken and Tom Davis, who uh, we all know from the Pong sketches. At the time, Franken and Davis were actually staff writers of the show, and apparently they were sharing a weekly salary of $350. Sounds like they're getting paid what they deserve for those Pong jokes. <laughs> they should pay us. <laughs> Elliot Gould enters the stage as if he kind of wandered in from off the street, puffing on a smoke, jacket and a bag in his hand. Gould sings a mashup of Let Yourself Go and Crazy Rhythm with Paul Schaefer on the piano. He's having a lot of fun. He has a lot of charisma. It wasn't like ha-ha funny, but I couldn't take my eyes off it either. Uh, I just enjoyed watching him sing and dance. I like that he looks a bit like Frank Zappa. It worked for me. It, ha it has a... It has charm. He has charm. I could watch him doing that for hours, probably. He has such a comforting uh, aura that comes from him, and he's very entertaining. If you're wondering, like, what Matt's vibes are, IRL in real life, these are what Matt's vibes are. Like, the jacket, everything. As soon as I saw him, I was like, this is some Frank Zappa Matt vibes. <laughs> I am sporting a mustache presently. Gilda Radner comes out to speak to him, and it looks like they had uh, maybe a date last night. She's crushing pretty hard on him, and she asks uh, Elliot Gould out again, but he has to turn her down because he has to return to L.A. I thought it was cute. I wish that I was Elliot. I wish that I had Gilda fawning over me like this. I think it's so adorable. It was cute. Gilda's a good actress. She she really plays it well, and Elliot, of course, is a good actor. He's in, he's in big Hollywood movies. They, they just did it so well. I thought it was very interesting. I feel like I believed it. I was like, oh, maybe this actually yeah. happened. And they were like, why don't we write it into the show? <laughs> yeah, I bought it. Then we go to a, a re-airing of the Try Hard 111 battery that was from, I believe, episode one. I had a quick chuckle. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know why. The mind is a strange thing. I liked it this time. I actually thought it was kind of funny. And I definitely laughed. And last time, I know I definitely didn't. You know, there's so many variables for something like that. I don't remember how I felt about it the first time. Like, if it wasn't for me before, it, it was for me now. Because I wrote in my notes that it was a 10 out of 10. I laughed out loud. Then we go to our next sketch, or our first real sketch of the night, Interior Demolitionists. Jane Curtin is visited by Chevy Chase and Elliot Gould, who work as interior demolitionists, and their job is to come to somebody's house and, and break stuff. And they have various instruments. My favorite is the handheld wrecking ball. Panicked Curtin, who didn't know they were coming, keeps hollering up to her husband, played by Dan Aykroyd, who's in the shower. Garrett Morris joins the uh, demolitionist team as an explosive expert and wires up the sofa. Aykroyd is not happy. I expected more rubble. I expected more fragments. Yeah, uh, that was a good line. I thought that was just hilarious. I thought it was so cool that like they really got to destroy a lot of shit on the set, and they got to like cut down the chandelier and you know the little the pops of the TV and the thing going off on the couch. I thought it was really funny. Jane Curtin was good as the bewildered wife. Chevy was really into it. He looked like he was enjoying smashing the shit out of things. Good good performances all around. At one point, Chevy goes to put back up the shelf. In the background, you can just see him lifting the shelf back into place. That destroyed me. 
what I really liked was at the end of the sketch when Jane Curtin throws the vase and it didn't break. It kind of made a case for why why interior demolitionists are important. You know, <laughs> you got to hire a pro, right? <laughs> this was a fun one. Great start. And a lot of energy. I like how they I like when they start the show with lots of energy like this. Like high energy sketches should always be at the top. And this was like this gets you going. Our next bit is a group therapy session. Uh, Elliot Gould is a psychologist or psychiatrist, leads a group therapy session with uh, John Belushi as Don Vito Corleone. And if you're a Godfather fan or a Godfather super fan like I am, I found this absolutely hilarious because of all the references to the Godfather and all the lines and bits that were taken out and used for comedic effect. I did think this sketch had a natural ending, but then they went on for another couple minutes with a bit more of Sherry. At first, I was sort of not strong on that part and then realized that this was a very early Valley Girl voice that Newman was doing. Kind of became cliched later, but I kind of partially thought that maybe they should have been two different sketches. Belushi was so funny in this from the facial expression that he held the whole time with like jutting his bottom jaw out and his top lip. So funny. So good. Every single time he spoke, I think I laugh. And Lorraine Newman, this has been her character so far. I fully believe it when she's in this character. I love it. It makes me laugh. Um, Maybe it didn't really fit in this. But because it was a group setting, it makes sense that it would kind of feel a little bit off when she went into her story. And when she started talking, that was really funny to me in a whole different way. I loved this. I absolutely loved this. I thought it was pretty good, too. Belushi obviously does a great impression. I have never seen The Godfather from start to finish. Me either. Keith, are you okay? I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. okay. The highlight for me was actually definitely Lorraine Newman. I, I agree with what you said, Keith. It probably should have been two different bits. But, oh my gosh, I thought she killed it. Because you're right, you know, what is this, the early 1976? That hit yep. song, Valley Girl, is not going to be a number one for another, what is, that was 1982. Mm-hmm. Valley Girl was number hit number one. Lorraine and, was ready. She, yeah. she knew what was coming. She and was she, ready for this. And she was prepared. She would just mm-hmm. went off. That was like a little monologue that she just fired out there. She didn't stammer. She didn't stutter. She had that Valley Girl character down. And yeah, so much earlier... Than all the 80s, because this is going to be a big trope in the 80s, the Valley Girl. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my God. For sure. For sure. I think earlier it felt to me like she wasn't vibing with the characters that she was written for. And this is the first time where it feels like she really gets to show her talent. What I'm noticing more and more about Newman is how she can disappear. She's not obviously Lorraine Newman every time. And that's a lot more difficult typically for for women to do than men because men can slap on you know usually a beard or a mustache or whatever but she's really uh disappearing into these characters and and it's great i agree i have asked several times is that lorraine newman because i just wasn't completely sure this was a hit for me this one and speaking of hits new shimmer it's a floor wax it's a dessert topping this is a classic ad in the 90s when they were playing snl you know best of ads this was always one of the ones that led off the show. So Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner argue if New Shimmer is a floor wax or a dessert topping. Tastes terrific and just look at that shine. This was, you know, for context, this was a time when things were starting to be cross-branded like uh, shampoo and conditioner. This is one of their best perfectly performed, perfectly written. I adore this. This would be on my own personal highlight reel. 
I agree. This still feels like every two-in-one product to me. Like, the believability of a two-in-one product is on this level for me. It was good to see Chase as the uh, the pitchman here instead of Dan Aykroyd. What a good job he did. I always associate this kind of character, if you were to tell me that this, if I were to read this sketch and not know which not-ready-for-prime-time player was going to be in which part, I would have assumed that Dan Aykroyd was going to come out. But yeah, oh gosh, I, I'm glad he didn't in this one because Chevy was awesome. Then we jump to a Gary Weiss film. I also forgot on the last episode to credit Gary Weiss for our favorite film of all time, uh, Homecoming at the Airport. This one is called, uh, I think, Play Misty for me or Misty. And what it is, it's just a bunch of clips showing a bunch of piano bar lounge singers singing very different versions of Misty. At the time, everyone was playing this song and there were very, very many different variations of it. I know the song. I sort of like the kitschiness of lounge singers, but uh, this one didn't really do it for me. You know, I, I guess maybe you would, it would be expected of me if you were to take my opinions thus far and analyze them. Maybe Matt doesn't like this. I, I really enjoyed this a great deal. There was something so cool in late night TV and kitschy and off and weird about it. And like the the quality of the footage being so different from like sh- shot to shot and the styles of the singers varying are around from shot to shot. You know, it's not something it's not something on paper that maybe I would like if this was any other genre. But, you know, old man, 70s lounge singer, I wouldn't be into it. But this this spoke to me. I loved it. I loved it. Not at first, like as it kind of lulled me into it. I started to feel a little bit tired of the show, like getting me into my feelings. So I actually looked away. I was like, I pretend I do not see it. I pretend I do not hear it. I do not want to cry about this. I don't want to get emotional about this. I don't know if that was the intention, um, but it definitely, I had an emotional reaction to this. I'm not going to lie. I had some sort of emotional reaction to this. Yeah, I liked it. And I think it will stick out for me. I would like to see more stuff that feels like this. Yeah, I felt it was, I don't know, it really hit all my nostalgia buttons. Uh, It made me think I was in a different time, a different place. I I just really thought it was spot on. And considering how much I hated the first one, uh, what a turnaround. So I'd, I'd certainly be curious to see a number three. Okay, so then we have a Chiron, and there's a gentleman in the audience who is a corrupt city official. Um, he got a kick out of it. Uh, this guy actually looked like a corrupt city official, but he also, I, I think he's a c- celebrity or something. He looked familiar, this man that they showed. And when the camera went on him, the audience seemed to cheer a little bit. So I, I don't know if he was uh, somebody of some renown. Yeah, I didn't recognize him, but uh, you're right. Uh, they, they were spot on. He was straight out of central casting. <laughs> So uh, next we go to Elliot and Gilda Part 2. Gilda walked by Elliot's dressing room and she saw a woman named Linda in there who's very pretty. Elliot Gould says she's just an old friend of his and he likes to visit when he's in New York. Gilda kind of gets jealous and doubles down on what she said earlier about uh, having a great time with him last night. Then they throw to Anne Murray and uh, Gilda gets jealous. Who's Anne Murray? Still nice chemistry between these two and uh, nice banter. Yeah, it continued to work for me. Keep raising the stakes. I, I like when they have hooks throughout the show, little running gags. I agree with that. thought it was cute. And if they continue on with it, I'm sure I will continue to think it's cute. So now we go to Anne Murray. She sings the song, uh, I think it was originally called The Call, but uh, it's also known as Long Distance Call, and it's from her 1975 album Together. She did what she does very well live. It's not my type of music. It was a great Anne Murray performance. 
Yeah, I mean, Anne-Marie was never my type of music. Like, that's the kind of song that you would hear at, like, a, a, like an anniversary party, a family reunion, any function like that. But her voice is angelic, honestly. I wouldn't listen to her if I was just chilling by myself. But her voice is really nice. I have a little complaint, though. And I promise this is probably my only complaint this whole episode. But she was done dirty by her hairstylist. Like, who? <laughs> <laughs> Like, before it zoomed in on her, I was like, how old was she when this came out? Because she's looking like my great-grandmother like a week before she died. This is not good. Like, this look, her outfit looks comfy as hell, though. The perm, though. The perm, though. Yeah, she kind of has the Bob Ross thing on the go. (laughs) It's just, it's just really atrocious. I mean, listen, Anne-Marie... It just reminds me of my youth and, you know, I it, hit, it hits a nostalgia button for me that just uh, that I'm just not really capable of disliking it. I just it's almost like a coziness. But I mean, it's so Kmart. It's so plain white jockeys, white bread. It's your grandma's music. Let's get that right. But I mean, she does it well. And since I grew up with it, I there was a kind of a charm to it. I totally get why somebody would watch this and be like, the fuck is this? I'm going to the bathroom. That's just me personally. And yeah, her hair is a sin. Her outfit is a sin. Somebody should have maybe said, suggested something about that. Bit out of the fashion for the times, I would say. Even in 1975. She was literally done dirty here by her hairstylist. Like, I'm just looking out for my sister. So now we go to weekend update. Um, I noticed right off the bat that I'm Chevy Chase and you're not got no reaction whatsoever. Didn't get one from me either. Yeah, weird. So just to go through some some highlights, a lot of Gerald Ford stuff. I think some of the some of the charm, I guess, to these Gerald Ford jokes is prior to this, you had a lot of like presidential impressions and stuff, but blatant mockery of of the president in the United States was not a common thing on television. We then go to Angola again, which is Angelo flipping a pizza or flipping dough again. It was funnier this time, but it was because I knew what was coming and I knew that the audience maybe didn't know what was coming. So that Mm. was funny for me personally. But if I was sitting in the audience, I don't know if that would have hit for me. This episode keeps giving me weird feelings. First of all, and I mean that in a good way, because even when the jokes aren't landing for me, I don't know what it is about this particular episode, but it's giving me such nostalgic SNL charm. This episode is really like a warm blanket. You know, I talked about it with the pacemaker thing before. I didn't like that joke the first time. This this time I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. The Angelo thing, I was captivated by the grainy pizzeria footage. This is kind of what I, I was looking for when when the show started. New York 70s grainy almost grimy footage like you can almost smell it and feel it this feels like when you realize a baby is like has self-awareness and you put it in front of a mirror and start to realize that it's itself it has consciousness the rain at the cape yeah this is lorraine at cape canaveral watching a a rocket be launched into space filled with waste this is i think the first use of a green screen on saturday night live Your first time seeing Lorraine Newman as the reporter was a hit, and then the last time was not so popular. How did this one work for you? She really toned it down this time, so I liked it much more. And they gave her, I thought they gave her some good jokes. Is this like the origin of bad green screen humor? Because, oh my god, it was so funny. It reminds me of like YouTube in 2006. How she's just talking and it's panning away up to the rocket. And you can just hear her be like, oh, the power. Oh, the thrust. Like, (laughs) 
so good. So funny. I think we're seeing that Lorraine Newman was more of a uh, pioneer of comedy than I thought. I'm starting to think she was really a pioneer for the the form of the short form comedy we see today on YouTube or TikTok. Those quick little bites of very specific, ridiculous personalities. That is so cool to see in an earlier time than now. We go to the re-airing of the Jamatol commercial with Michael O'Donoghue and Chevy Chase as husband and wife. And I did find the Geritol ad, what that ad is parodying, and I'm going to put that on our Twitter feed at SNHell1. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, I'm also going to put the Show Us Your Larks, um, the one that's parodying the guns. I'm going to share that on Twitter as well. We have a Twitter yeah. feed. What's our handle? SNHell1. At SNHell1. I don't have Twitter because I won't give it my phone number. Would you like to know what the tagline of the actual Geritol ad was? Please. My wife. I think I'll keep her. (laughs) Stop. No wonder they went ahead and did this. Oh, Oh my my God. And uh, yeah, that will be on our Twitter at SNHell1D. I I look forward to reaction to that extremely, extremely sexist ad. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Again, Michael O'Donoghue was Chevy's wife. No costume or anything. I really think that this was just fun with casting. I, I love think, it. There's nothing deep in this. It's just Michael O'Donoghue obviously didn't want to shave and, and put on a dress, you know? I love it. Yeah, me too. Chevy does a story about killer marijuana, which is uh, poisonous or uh, is having severe chemical reactions and killing people. And he offers to test the marijuana for any viewers who offer to send it to him directly. This was quick, and I thought it was really funny. It was funny. I wonder if anybody tried to send stuff to that address, because I would have. I would almost guarantee that people sent marijuana and then some to that address. For sure. (laughs) I wonder what the address actually was, though. Like, I'm sure Chevy didn't give his actual address on the air. Angelo's Pizza Shop gets inundated with with weed from well-meaning viewers. (laughs) Angelo didn't complain. The NBC logo expensive graphic design was especially (laughs) hilarious to me personally, as someone that has worked in, like, graphic design throughout my life. This is so true. Like, the most basic designs will go for so much money. And it's uh, it was just funny to see him go through all the designs and see them kind of deteriorate, like as he was going <laughs> through them. Yeah, you, I mean, you're a visual artist. You you probably have seen this closer than most of us, and, and even <laughs> I could appreciate some of that. And I, I can't draw a circle. So there's a backstory to that. There, it was a, a Nebraska PBS station that had a very very similar logo, and they did sue over it. Um, <laughs> and there was an out-of-court settlement, and they got uh, $800,000 in new equipment from NBC and money to finance getting a new logo. That's actually sickening. I hope their new logo was, like, more than shapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably got more from $50,000 to a small local firm than NBC got for, like, several million from probably these big Park Avenue places. Oh, yeah. So then finally, no Garrett Morris today. No! I know. I, I was wondering how you guys felt about that. No, Garrett. Chevy does it by himself in a foreign language. What was the reason for that? Were they just trying something different? I guess I just don't really understand. I was expecting to laugh. My laugh was brewing for Garrett, and then it was ripped away. Disappointment was palpable. What a letdown. Did not work this ending. I like Chevy Chase just fine. But yeah, look, kind of like what Dee said. Like At this point, I, I had the laughter cocked and ready. It was brewed. I was ready to drink it. I was stoked. You know what? But when the weekend update started this time, I even listened to the top story because I was like, I'm going to try to imagine Garrett shouting it. 
today's top story and it never happened i this blue balled me hard yeah i i was really disappointed now maybe they're bait and switching us and garrett will be back next time it was disappointing i mean i was going to say this at the end of the uh, recording but i'm noticing that there's not much garrett in this episode he has a couple of lines at the very beginning, and then he's a glorified extra for everything else. I know. I'm starting to have, like, actual anxiety that they're starting to phase him out. If I lose this man on the show, I don't know. There's mm. there's going to be a little too much whiteness for me. There are some definite Garrett highlights coming up, you know, throughout the series that we just haven't seen yet that I know are out there. But uh, I, I don't know what was up this particular week. The next sketch is the killer bees. Chevy Chase and Gilda Radner are a married couple, and they get a warning about killer bees crossing from South America into America. In come the killer bees from South America, who are basically uh, a parody of the Mexican banditos from many, many movies, but uh, definitely Eli Wallach in The Magnificent Seven. And they're looking for pollen. Chevy and Radner have no pollen. Their pollen, they say, is all at their Aunt Betty's. But these killer bees are smart because they already have Aunt Betty with them. Aunt Betty's played by Jane Curtin. So the first, uh, we'll split this sketch in two, I think, if that works for you guys. It works Um, for me because I was just going to say, this one's a tale of two sketches. Mm -hmm. It is. Elliot Gould, as one of the bees, goes into a bit of a monologue about how his his life was tough and his town was impoverished. Um, So up to this stage, uh, how was the sketch working for you? This is my preferred stage of the sketch. Phase one of this sketch is a home run for me. The bees are great. Elliot Gould really feels... Like a not-ready-for-prime-time player. He has blended in seamlessly with the cast. He's not standing out like Candace Bergen is like, I'm the star, and it's all about her being the star, and even in her sketch, look at me, look at me. I don't get that from Elliot Gould. He really is lost in the cast, and I think that's an amazing compliment to give him. B. Belushi is really funny for me, but I don't understand why they had to go into this with the Mexican accents. Like, they could have just been like bees with guns, because the concept in general is hilarious to me it just made me feel bad for laughing that was very much like a movie tv stereotype it was definitely farcical i didn't i don't think it was mean-spirited by any stretch and don't get me and you know me i think the show has been mean-spirited i think belushi's japanese hotel guy is mean-spirited uh but i don't get that vibe here i actually thought belushi was hilarious here he, he generated some of my biggest laughs of the night with his mexican bee madness I is agree. what i'm trying to say i think the difference being eli wallach played this kind of character in the magnificent seven and by today's standards i think casting eli wallach in that role was the mistake and these guys are parodying him this is a gray area and i totally understand if people are jarred by it i'm not uh, i'm not mexican or or south american who cares what I say? But in this one, I didn't get uh, a mean-spirited vibe at all. But I actually preferred the second half of the sketch. Yeah, I guess we'll disagree there, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So yeah, the camera leaves Elliot Gould, and people start pointing out there's some technical difficulties coming on. Lauren Michaels comes out to see what's going wrong. Um, and this is the on-screen debut of Lauren Michaels. And then he heads to the control room. And uh, we see longtime director Dave Wilson, who is drunk at the uh, helm. Belushi gives a really interesting <laughs> monologue about Dave Wilson's failed career. And how, he's, uh, <laughs> how he's now, because of alcoholism, he now has to work at Saturday Night Live. Um, I, I laughed all the way through. I liked the this meta 
fourth wall breaking. And it was it was fun to see Lorne Michaels because it's just always fun to see Lorne Michaels. I thought it was all like we're going to be cool meta, but not really. Like the jokes stopped. Mm. They, the good performances stopped. Lorne's not an actor. I didn't think, you know, he's not funny. And he goes to see that drunk in the control room. I'm going to separate the sketch into a small phase three, actually, now that I think about it. Okay. Uh, so let me leave off the ending and just say that this middle piece with Lorne and the camera and the control room, it it felt forced to me. I didn't vibe with it. I thought they, they, they just, this was just like, oh, we'll do something meta and it'll be funny. So uh, as as the chaos is going and Dave Wilson's been fired. I laughed when I found out that it was Lauren's dad. <laughs> well, oh, that's right. Yeah, because they say it's Lauren's father afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Gilda Radner breaks character and introduces Elliot Gould to her mother. Gilda's mother is actually played by uh, Madeline Kahn's mother. And we'll see Madeline later in the year as a host. It's her mother, Paula, who was an opera singer at one point. This was just for me, goofy and fun. I enjoy the continuation of the story. Uh, I'm a big fan of running jokes. This one continued to work for me. I really thought they did all of them well. I agree with Matt. When there is a running joke like that, it keeps me engaged throughout the episode. It makes it feel like there is a constant chain throughout the episode. So even if the rest of the things don't feel like they're puzzle pieces that fit together, this pulls it all back together. Our next uh, segment is an Albert Brooks film. Realizing that people aren't finding his stuff funny, Albert Brooks goes to a audience research institute. So he's offering to change his ways or to prove that he actually is funny. So he consults with a bunch of experts, three of whom are James L. Brooks, the co-creator of The Simpsons and many other things, Brooks's brother Cliff, and Julie Payne, who uh, actually went on to play Cheryl David's mom on Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, the fourth man I couldn't identify. And they just run Albert Brooks's uh, films through some testing, like an older couple watches Brooks and they don't understand what they're doing. There's four people watching a video and the responses are fed into a computer. At the end, he's given an 800-page report that he wants summarized. And he's heading to vacation and, and can't wait to be back. I don't know when this was shot, but writing a movie about people not liking your movies and not finding you funny after producing a bunch of unlikable and unfunny movies didn't sit well with me. This was just another Albert Brooks Saturday Night Live flop for me. I thought it was kind of funny. There are a few lines that literally, like, made me cry laughing. They show the guy in the bed and he has, like, these sensors all over his body, but he has two of them on his nipples. And they just state that they read and discard everything. They just discard it. Like, that's all it is, is reading and discarding. And that is so many places. I can almost appreciate every Albert Brooks film up until now because this felt so self-aware. Like, it felt like I was getting a payoff for the rest of the, the stuff that I sat through. Like, like I got to sit in on some sort of joke that I wouldn't have understood if I didn't watch every episode up until now. So this is definitely my favorite Albert Brooks film. I am not a fan of these Albert Brooks movies in general. Uh, I mean, let me say, this is my favorite one that I've seen, for sure. I, I got the sense, maybe from watching this, that he knows people aren't liking my movies. Fucking good. They're not funny. I was going to say it makes the other film because earlier we watched that film about the lounge singers doing Misty. But at that and so you might say, well, that wasn't funny, Matthew, but that was a different vibe. Albert Brooks is out here when he's making his movies. He's trying to be funny. And there is nothing worse than watching Albert Brooks try so hard to be funny and failing. Just take your money and go, Albert. Take your money and go. But that's what he's doing by not being funny. He is taking his money and going. Then go. Mm -hmm. Give me the go part. He's gone. Good. 
Hashtag yeah. get your bag, Albert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Literally, though, get your bag, girl. Like, honestly, at the time, if you were in this position and say you were stuck in a spot like where maybe you couldn't come up with your most creative ideas, are you not going to take the bag? Honestly. It must be very frustrating for Albert Brooks. to. He's probably heard a lot of criticisms about his films at this point. And he's like, well, man, you know what? I'm being paid well and I think I'm doing funny material. And, you, you know, you got James Brooks here, James Brooks. <laughs> Is a legendary producer. But you know what? What you're doing for this particular late night show, Albert, it just doesn't work. There's nothing wrong with admitting failure. Take your money and go. I said get your bag. <laughs> and so after the uh, Albert Brooks film, go to Gilda, who insists on marriage, or to Elliot, and they throw to commercial. And then we come back to the Muppets. Scred and Queen Puta, and apparently they've been having an affair for quite some time. Scred feels guilty and wants to confess to Plubus. He goes to speak to Plubus, and Plubus says he'll kill whoever's running around with Puta. Scred goes to the mighty Favad, who shows a a different side. He's kind of digging all this stuff. This wasn't bad. It wasn't terrible. I'm, I'm struggling with, uh, you know, sex and masturbation jokes involving Muppets. That might be my hang-up. But one thing I will say is that the audience, the live audience, seemed to really enjoy this. Me, not so much. Greg was disgusting at the beginning of this. I'm literally kink-shaming him while they're reading the sex book. Um, But then you find out they've been having an affair for 400 years. Like, do you realize the tea... Like, how can you not be into the tea of this? There's so much drama in this universe at this point that I need an entire show. I need an entire show. So yeah, we have Scred here as a homewrecker. I'm not going to lie, I love the dregs at this point. I wish it was its own show, separate from SNL, because I know that I'm not going to get the depth and the amount that I want out of it. And I feel like it takes me out of SNL because I want to just watch this as a show. It takes you out of SNL because you're watching like comedy and everything's funny and entertaining. And then you see something like this and you're like, what the fuck? I can't believe you would suggest that this should have a show. I love it. Oh my God. I love it. I love Scrat. I love the drama. This should not have a show. This should not have the TV time it's allotted. This is contractual obligation trash. This is a piss break. This is get out of here with this. I can hear you breathing to talk. Let me finish. This is shit. Jim Henson's worst work, a TV show that's not geared toward children with these contraptions and with this level of joke, these juvenile ass fucking jokes, trash, waste of time. Ooh, These just make me mad. Can these guys also take their money and go, get your bag, go. Matt says juvenile jokes, like he doesn't find toilet humor funny, and I think that's so silly. This is so funny to me, and while I don't think it belongs on SNL, it doesn't mean that I think it doesn't belong in the universe at all. It's funny. They're they're (laughs) desperate. They're trying to be body now because the sketches don't work. Everybody knows that. Well, how do we fucking make these sketches work? Well, let's try to make them a little bluer. Let's get a little body. Let's have some jerk-off jokes or some sex jokes. And you know what? Let's try that. Let's throw something else at the wall and see if it sticks. It doesn't stick. These are a failure. An adult-themed version of The Muppets is something that could feasibly work on paper with proper writing. It would have to be clever. It would have to not be the shit show that they drag out for these SNL episodes. It's not. It's done really poorly. Yeah, and we still have uh, we still have quite a bit of uh, Muppets in the for land of Gorks left to come. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. yeah. D is softening. Maybe you and I will, too. Um, 
And and like I said in another episode, D has been on Team Scred since day one. Day one, baby. Our next sketch is called Birthright, and it's Jane Curtin playing a host of a TV show. And it features uh, Dan Aykroyd and Elliot Gould as doctors. Aykroyd is playing Dr. Pierre Lechev, but he says, please call me Jacques, who is a master of the Leboye method of birth, which is basically similar to how it's done a lot of places these days. And this is actually based on an actual thing. Uh, a Dr. Leboye wrote a book. Uh, it's called Birth Without Violence that advocated for a smooth and peaceful birth. Aykroyd demonstrates the process with a doll and the mother, and it shows a very nice, quiet birth with the baby slowly being welcomed into the world. Elliot Gould then shows the American method, which is called the Pearl Harbor, which is essentially a, a big, loud party with a band and clowns and the baby being tossed around. I thought this sketch was a very entertaining but dry build to a nice big laugh at the end. I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting because I feel like these really are kinds of like kind of the two types of birth that are offered to people in this world at this point. Like you can either have a chill at home birth where you're like in the bathtub or you can have a birth at the hospital where everything's loud and bright. I don't know. I I didn't really think it was like super funny. I always think it's funny how into character Dan Aykroyd gets like his little finger condoms well like what was that like he's so deep into the character (laughs) that I literally believe that he's a doctor (laughs) outside of the Muppets this is my least favorite part of this episode I think I don't think the jokes worked you know the 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 doctor bits you know yeah I thought the little rubbers on the finger was cute but uh, and you know everybody's fine in it but there wasn't really any jokes here they're just throwing a little baby around and a bunch of hoopla. Oh, it's called a Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I thought this might have been a little bit of filler. I didn't dig this sketch very much. Our next bit is uh, Anne Murray singing Boogie With You. Thing, uh, everything I said about the first one, I, again, I'm super proud of my fellow Nova Scotian. But uh, that's about it. She was pushing it here. This is not her kind of music. And like, Anne Murray has a nice voice, but she's not some fucking strong singer. It's not Mariah Carey out here. It's not even like Sass Jordan. She can't be pulling off these, like, don't be trying to get gritty with your voice, Anne. Sing your standards, sing Snowbird, sing You Need Me, and be nice. It's smooth like butter. It's Kmart. It's Kmart on a Saturday afternoon when you drifted in after the arcade and you're looking through the tapes and you're like, hmm, maybe I'll have A&W on the way home. And it's a nice, smooth Saturday afternoon. Hey, Murray, so. like, you can't sing this song with that hair. I'm sorry. Like, there's a limit to what a white woman can pull off with her aesthetic and then trying to get into this vibe. There's such a disconnect between what she is presenting me and the vibe of the actual song. But she's fine. She's fun. She's having fun. Um, And now we go to uh, our last main segment of the night. It's uh, the new comedy team of Al Franken and Tom Davis, a.k.a. the Pong Guys. And this is a modern take on what life would be like had, quote unquote, the indigenous people won. Basically talks about white people as the minority and how life would be like if uh, indigenous people treated white people the way white people were currently treating indigenous people. And I'd like to hear what you guys have to say first on this one, because I've got a lot to say, and a lot of it's based on factors outside of the sketch. Well, gosh, let me go first, because I really don't have much to say at all. And Dee has a look in her eyes that says she might have a little more than me. Uh, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funnier than their Pong bits. And, and you know, they, they were, were they pushing it a little bit? I don't know. I don't, uh, I, I didn't particularly find it funny. I didn't find it to be the the filler 
that uh, the the Pearl Harbor baby sketch was. This is classic like last sketch of the night, Saturday Night Live, where they put on the stuff that might push your buttons a little bit, that might edge you off a little bit. Edge you off. I think that means something else on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) These are white people, right? I just don't understand, like, being in the mindset that you would even think of this. That you would think, like, I'm going to imagine if I was in the position of indigenous people whose land my ancestors saw, by the way, um, but I'm going to put myself in their shoes and then write jokes about it, like, what is that? Go back to Pong. Go back to Pong. I don't like this, and I don't want to see you again. But were they not trying to make the point, like, like that? That it's. I think they were trying to make the point that what we're doing is wrong. Like the, for the Cleveland yeah, Indians, they were. like that's wrong. But you, you seem to not like the because it's not their their white their, man. It's takeover. not their point to make. But they have the platform. They're white dudes on national television. At least somebody's trying, maybe. I guess, but it just came off wrong because it's not their point to make. Like. I, I it just came that. off wrong because of that, I guess. Like, I can see what maybe what they were trying to do if that was the point. Perhaps their heart is in the... Could you say their heart is in the right their place? Their heart might be in the right place, but if their heart was in the right place, how hard could it be to find two indigenous people that want to tell jokes? I bet it's not that hard. Two. In all of the United States. Two. But I, I didn't really think about it too hard. And that's the show, everyone. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now here's the... the this is where the outside baseball information might be affecting me a little too much. Franken and Davis. Can I ask you a question before you start? Yes. Are they Jewish? Franken is. I thought so. Okay, when watching this one, I, I gave the benefit of the doubt, and that is totally informed by the fact that during Franken's time in the Senate, he was very much an ally to uh, Native American causes and was very proactive in in promoting and uh, in appointing the right people to the right jobs. That had been a passion for him from his whole life. So his heart is absolutely, I think, in the right place in this one. They also made a lot of jokes towards their own cultures, Jewish and Swedish. So in a sense, they there was some equal opportunity offensives going on there. The other bit, too, that I think made this a little more palatable to me is that franken and davis were though they were born in america they were the children of immigrants or second generation immigrants this is getting really deep and and far perhaps too deep for this type of show but uh, these guys weren't descended from those who were responsible for the, the major atrocities of the 1800s and 1900s not that the atrocities didn't continue i think that that matters like i think that it absolutely matters where you and your ancestors lay in history when you're gonna make these sorts of jokes and knowing Mm -hmm. that definitely softens my opinion as well franken being jewish in minnesota would have also been a part of a very marginalized and discriminated group would i had been more comfortable if it was two indigenous people playing the two roles and throwing to them as the swede and the and the jewish person yes do i think their hearts were in the right places demonstrating how hateful things like uh, the Washington Redskins were to people. Yes, their hearts were in the right place, but uh, it's very difficult to see that looking back from today's perspective. Their hearts were in the right place. If it was 2021, it's like, I would assume you have more information than this, but it Mm -hmm. isn't. Um, So... I don't really blame them. I didn't think it was particularly funny. And I think that's the big question we have to ask. Like, I mean, on top of everything else is like, was it funny? And it, you know, it had shock value at points and there was, uh, th- their point was there, but uh, I certainly didn't laugh the way I did at a lot of other stuff on the show. If we're just going to talk about the jokes, 
the humor was pretty tepid. You know, there's only, you, you're right, it was just shock value. Uh, but I mean, that's all you're really getting out of it joke wise. It wasn't really funny. These guys are supposed to be comedians. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be comedy writers. They're still young. They're still new. They they mature as writers by leaps and bounds. So our last little segment, it isn't the typical goodbye. It's uh, Elliot Gould and Gilda Radner getting married. This last bit, so Elliot Gould and Gilda Radner are married in Saturday Night Live's universe. At last. At last. <laughs> I love a good running joke. This This paid off well. Good thought. I, I wonder whose idea this was. I don't know if it was Gilda's or just some fucking writer. Who knows? But I mean, going from start to finish, threading this throughout the whole show, I thought that was pretty smart writing. And gosh, Gilda is a, a perfect person to do it because she brought it. She, she just brought the performance. I wouldn't have believed Lorraine or Jane in this role. But I also want to mention, because I forgot to mention earlier, that in the B sketch, when they held a knife to her throat, she played that fucking slasher victim, the, the shock on her face. And she got those big eyes. She looked straight out of an Italian horror movie from 1976. Like she was in Suspiria all of a sudden. What a good actress. Really liked Gilda Radner. Liked her throughout the whole show. Good ending. I agree. Really impressed with Gilda. I'm really impressed with the shortness of this. I don't think it would have been as funny, like, if they had stood there and gone through the whole I do's of it. Do you know what I mean? They could have done that, but they didn't, and that was a good call. 100%. And then the last little bits that I I noticed, uh, Dave Wilson, fired director Dave Wilson's name is crossed out of the closing credits. (laughs) That was funny. I like that. And Don Pardo announces that Lauren Michaels played Dave Wilson and Dave Wilson played Lauren Michaels, which is not true, but it was funny. So, yeah, let's go through our, our awards for the night. So we'll start by uh, I used to rate the host first, but I'm having more fun doing this because we can look at it separately. Uh, let's rate the music. Um, how did Anne Murray do for you? I'm going to give Anne Murray a five out of ten. Uh, I think her second song was a complete overreach. I I don't really know if that's a big hit in her discography or anything. I've certainly never heard it before. And you know what? Her her atrocious outfit and her terrible perm, that that doesn't have anything to do with her performance. It's just bad television. But, you know, for something that only has nostalgic value, uh, I certainly can't give it more than a five. Anne Murray, six out of ten. The energy wasn't high enough for me. I am completely disregarding that perm, that situation on that white woman's head. Uh, I really can't grade Anne Murray. It's almost like like grading a relative's performance, and it's that's tricky for me. But I mean, she did what she did. It doesn't fit with Saturday Night Live, but uh, good for her. And uh, let's rate the host. Elliot Gould, I thought, blended in perfectly with the not-ready-for-primetime players. He seemed like part of the show. He didn't seem like, like, you know, I've already mentioned, uh, but he didn't seem like one of these hosts that wasn't interested in getting his hands dirty, that wasn't interested in enjoying the show. Elliot Gould, maybe one of my favorite hosts so far outside of uh, Richard Pryor, of course, but top two. I'm going to give Elliot Gould as a host an 8 out of 10. That's huge for you. Yes. Yeah. Matt, was he better than Lily Tomlin? Yes. Interesting. Okay. Because Lily Tomlin had that Candace Bergen thing where she's like, I'm not part of the show. I'm special here. Yeah, Elliot really felt like part of the show to me. If he was on regularly, I would absolutely not complain about it. Um, I'm going to give him an 8.5 out of 10 because that opening, so good. I think we're all on pretty much the exact same page here. He was very, very good. He was completely immersed in the sketches and the show. And even though he was the host, he blended in perfectly. He didn't overshine anyone. And he even was good enough to sort of let the other people have the the joke lines. He was sort of setting them up. 
Um, he went all in, and he did very, very well. I was really impressed with Elliot Gould. And what's the worst bit of the night for you guys? The Muppets. The Muppets really... This What a really good episode this was. Uh, I mean, even the the weird film with the lounge singers, that really could have taken me out of, out of the episode, but it didn't. That's just kind of my vibe. That's just the kind of shtick I enjoy. Uh, even Anne Murray just had the nostalgic value for me and i i think the the pearl harbor baby thing was just filler and but that's fine because every show has filler no you know there's going to be some very very few perfect episodes if there are any even the albert brooks film was better than usual and you know yeah it ended on a smile because you think maybe you don't have to sit through another one in the near future but the muppets Fuck up the flow of the episode. They take you out of the moment. It's a different kind of comedy. It's a different kind of presentation. It really ruined this episode for me. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the Muppets ruined an entire episode. Okay, I still like the episode. That's fair. But I mean, <laughs> gosh, like what? How out of place? What an eyesore! What an eyesore! <laughs> <laughs> on this episode. You know what? Okay, I'm done. Go I ahead. am putting my hand over Matthew's mouth right now. Nothing in this episode offended me so much or took me out of the episode so much that I can even state anything for this for the first time. There's nothing that I want to say brought the episode down for me. I got a little bit in my feelings uh, over that song at the beginning that Matthew was vibing with, the piano players. But yeah, that didn't make me feel like I had to give the, the episode a lower rating, so... That's great to hear. Um, the worst for me was Albert Brooks again. I, I was kind of enjoying the audience enjoying the Muppets, if that makes any sense at all. The Muppets were a very close second to the Albert Brooks film. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not working. It's not working for me at all the albert stuff your bit of the night my bit of the night was the strange gary weiss film men playing misty simply because i thought it was unique i don't really think we're gonna see you know what we're gonna see some weird shit on saturday night live sometimes going forward but it's gonna be things that really seem out of the blue or like out of place in the show most of them happen you know in the last half hour of the show and, you know, this is really anomalous. It's we I thought it was weird. I did not think it was funny. But gosh, for whatever reason, I don't know. It really spoke to me. And I loved watching it. And I would watch it again. And that was my favorite moment of the show. The Demolitionists. It was so over the top. So ridiculous. Just smashing stuff. Yelling. Jane's face when she's yelling up the stairs to Dan while he's in the shower. <laughs> is priceless. Garrett comes out like you hear an explosion and he walks in and he's like, I'm finished with the garage. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so good. I loved this and it kind of gave everybody a chance to give somebody a laugh in the audience. For me, it was the Shimmer skit, the uh, the commercial. I mean, I've seen it a million times and it's still got a million laughs out of me this, this viewing. This was a very strong episode. There was a lot of good stuff in it. And even the bad stuff is not quite as bad as as it has been. And the uh, star of the night. My star of the night was not in my favorite sketch of the night, but for her running performance in the Elliot Gould gags. First of all, you know what? A little asterisk. I think Elliot Gould was the star of the night. You know, my not ready for primetime players star of the night. Uh, it was Gilda Radner. She was shockingly good. In that uh, in that B sketch when she was a, a victim, she she really played like I really believe that she slept with Elliot and she was in love with him. She's a really good actress. I loved Gilda Radner tonight. 
Gilda was great, but I'm going to go with Lorraine Newman because I feel like this is the first episode where I get to really see her come into her own and I get to enjoy the characters that she's building for us. So I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with her. This was the hardest yet. Not because I had to pick between two. This one I had to pick between almost the whole cast. Poor Garrett got a real bum steer on this one, not being featured at all. So yeah, this was a this was a tough, tough, tough one for me because a lot of people were at their best. But I, I did go wind up giving this one to Gilda. She was really great in the Elliot Gould stuff and everything else we saw her in tonight was, was pretty, pretty good as well. This was a really tough one for me. You guys will be happy to hear that Elliot Gould will be back, and it won't be long before we see Elliot again. Anne Murray will also be back. Um, Paula Kahn, who played Gilda's mother, passed away in 2012 at the age of uh, 88. And we have one big departure. Albert Brooks is gone. Bye! That is the end of the line for Albert Brooks as far as Saturday Night Live is concerned. But he's gone on to have a a pretty amazing career. Real Life was uh, one of the... uh, First things he did, I think, shortly after this, um, Lost in America, a lot of appearances as an actor. Um, He appeared in The Simpsons. He was Nemo's dad in Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. Uh, Broadcast News was another one of his big ones. And he actually was in Taxi Driver, which we talked about earlier. So why did this not work? The two stories, or Albert Brooks' story is basically he was living and shooting in L.A. And Lorne Michaels had less control over his work and therefore was uh showed less ownership for it michaels on from his perspective is basically that the movies were too long they weren't funny and they weren't conducive to the show in many ways both are probably true brooks has become one of many people who have taken credit for the success of saturday night live early on um whether deserve it or not he he claims to be the person to suggest they have revolving hosts instead of just one regular host and he described his tenure as a an snl pioneer thusly i sort of felt that i was sort of you know the first stage of a rocket that went to the moon i provided the service i helped get them off the ground and about two miles up i was thrown into the ocean that is so dramatic especially after you told me how much money he was paid like I don't see you out here on the stage. I don't see you out here doing sets. Like, what do you mean? When I see a good idea from Albert Brooks on screen, I will give him a shred of credit. All I have seen from him so far on Saturday Night Live is a waste of time. So whatever you're doing behind the scenes, I'm going to choose to believe whoever's saying something against you right now. Because what you're bringing to the show that I can smell and taste and see is piss break stuff, man. I just think it was the wrong thing at the wrong time. I am I mean, I'm glad to see them go. Um, and this episode got the Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy, Variety, or Music Series for uh, the 1975-76 season. And so far, I uh, from what we've seen so far, I think that is well-deserved. Best rating of the season that I have seen, for sure. Yeah, if anything's going to win an Emmy, it's certainly this episode. I mean, when I think of television in 1976, I mean, I'm very doubtful that I could watch a hell of a lot of it and still be like, this is funny. The basic show formula that we've come to know and love is almost in place here. Albert Brooks's film didn't do it for me. Uh, The Muppets I wrote was awkward and icky. Franken and Davis was well-meaning, and the intended point, I think, was valid, and it was intelligently written for the time, but it ages very poorly. The first half of the show would have gotten a nine, but unfortunately, after update, it started to drop a lot for me. 
Um, I'm going with a seven, but this is a seven with an asterisk where this is actually my favorite episode. So this is like a seven plus, but not a 7.5 for me. This episode is the first episode where it felt like the writers knew what they were doing, where it felt like the cast was understanding their place, uh, understanding what the audience actually found funny from each of them individually. Yeah, this episode felt the most put together. We're saying goodbye to Albert Brooks. We are starting to establish some sort of show here. Like before it was just a Saturday night variety show, but now it's starting to feel like it is actually something with consistency. 8.5 out of 10 on this episode. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think D makes an excellent point. You mm-hmm. really get the sense. I get the sense that the writers are starting to click. The the not ready for prime time players are clicking. Everything's just starting to click in gel because they've done it a few times. And, mm-hmm. and you know, practice makes perfect. And it's not like maybe they're not home running anything this time. Uh, maybe there's not like that landmark sketch or that groundbreaking highlight reel piece. But this is just good, classic Saturday Night Live with talented people that are starting to understand a formula. I'm going to go ahead and give this entire episode an overall grade of 7 out of 10. You know what? No, no. That's too cruel. 7.5, please. Ooh. All right. This was a, this episode was a lot of fun both to watch and to record. So, uh, Matt and Dee, thank you so much for coming uh, coming by tonight. And I'm so glad you enjoyed this one. Oh, my gosh. Uh, my thanks to, well, I guess to you and to Dee. This is just, uh, this episode was a treat. This, uh, not only this episode of SNL, but this episode of SNL. Two treats, double treats for Matt. Thank you very, 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 very much. And we'll be back in about a week's time with episode 10. Do you guys know who's on, uh, do you know who's on episode 10? No. Leonard Skinner. No. <laughs> Uh, Buck Henry is the host with musical guests Bill Withers and Tony Basil. I'm not excited for this, but you know what? (laughs) Stranger things have happened. And I want to warn people ahead of time. Buck Henry was the host that they like to save the edgy stuff that no other host would do. So they they kept that behind. Okay, now I'm into it. (laughs) Good sell. That's a good sell for me. And I thought Tony Basil might uh, might make you excited. So yeah, she's a she's a she's an accomplished choreographer who will go on to have a one hit wonder. Uh, So yeah, I'm I'm very curious about this. Now you you piqued my interest. This will be a fun one. But until then, D and Matt and I will be sitting in our lawn chairs, burning what remains of the celluloid. That was once Albert Brooks's films as we say goodbye to him here in S and hell.